So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the third chapter, verses 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no money that you are not authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to everyone, but especially to this church, because that's the way we're going to look at this is from the aspect of the church. So let's pray. Our dear Lord, you have left us here in this place, in this world. Sometimes we refer to it as the sewer because it is so messed up. But you've left us here to be light. But what happens when the darkness encroaches upon the light? Then there's a confusion. There's a muddledness And so, Lord, we we ask this morning that as we go through what John the Baptist is telling these people, what the true fruits of repentance are, that we will take it to heart. We will recognize that we are called to a different standard, your standard. It has nothing to do with the standard that surrounds us. It has to do with what you have revealed to us. We will give you the glory for that in Christ's name. Amen. It is a testimony to the degree to which we have fallen away from the understanding of what morality is that probably most of you misunderstood the um, title for this morning's uh, um, uh, sermon. I I, kind of struggled with it, whether or not I was actually going to use it or not, because I knew it would um, be misinterpreted. It sounds like the kind of sermons that I was raised under in the Southern Baptist Church, where we talk about the immorality of the people in the church. Well, that's important, but that's not exactly what I'm I'm talking about here. If you thought that what we're going to talk about is, oh, uh, not drinking, not smoking, not running around, not sleeping around, and, and those kinds of thing, even though they're very important, that's not the kind of morality that I want to talk about this morning. You see, in our text, what is going on is John the Baptist is telling people what the fruits of true repentance are, and he's convicted them, and now they're going to come to him and say, well, what does true repentance, or what is the fruit of repentance, what actually does that look like? To boil down John the Baptist's answer to its simplest presentation, he says, be the moral church. Be moral is what I'm asking you to do. Now, we need to redefine what we mean by morality. I'm going to spend most of the morning talking about this, but let me just give you a brief uh, view right here at front so that you understand as we go through it. Many people mistakenly equate morality with ethics. Those are two different things. And so every culture has a set of values that they adhere to, which are the ethics of that culture. However, morality is simply the measuring stick to see how well you are abiding by the ethics under which you live. 
The ethics are the standards, the values, the morality is how well you abide by those values. Well, if you're a Christian, and this is the Christian church, by the way, then the Bible from cover to cover talks to you about what the ethics of heaven are, what the kingdom ethics under which you live. But Jesus brilliantly and uh, very famously quoting Old Testament passages boiled all of the ethical system of heaven down into one passage, two commandments. I read it earlier in the moment of the words. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. That is the very essence of kingdom ethics. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not your family. Not your spouse. Not those who look and think like you. Not your brothers and sisters in church. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all of the law and the prophets, all of the scripture is wrapped up in these two commandments. Brothers and sisters, that's the ethics of the Bible. Now, when the people come to John the Baptist and they say, okay, what does it look like for me? Well, he's going to give them a couple of examples, but it's just the tip of the iceberg because When Jesus tells us what the ethical standards are of heaven, he does it in this positive sense. Love the Lord your God with everything in your being and love those who he loves. Love the ones he made in his image. And so we're going to bring that out as we pass through the texts. And we're going to ask ourselves the question over and over again, what exactly does the moral church look like? Well, as we make our way through Luke, uh, if you've been following along, you know that um, we're making sort of a transition, or Luke is making a transition between the way he started his gospel, focusing on the nativity of Christ, to now beginning to talk about his ministry when he is baptized and begins his Galilean ministry. And just as we saw in the nativity section, Luke has sort of uh, uh, adhered to the same methodology. First, he talks about the historical background, then he grounds it in the Old Testament, and then he reveals to us the introducer. He introduces the introducer, if you will, in John the Baptist. Now, we have learned already quite a few things about John the Baptist and and the way Luke's presented him. We've learned that he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we talked about how vitally important repentance is to all of this. We found that John the Baptist basically has two major um, um, purposes or foci in his ministry. And that is first to introduce Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Christ. And secondly, it is to prepare the hearts of the people for that Savior. And that's what his baptism is all about. Now, towards that end, (laughs) when we come upon this text... Hanging in the air are some of the most abrasive words that you're going to find in Scripture. I mean, we looked at them last, last week. They come out to be baptized and he says, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So doesn't that put a little bit of emphasis on what do you mean by the fruit of repentance? You see, that's the operative phrase this morning. What exactly is or are the fruits of repentance? Because John the Baptist says if you're not bearing these fruits, then like an old tree that is of no value in the orchard, I'm gonna, we're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. That, that's, that's a threat of hell, folks, unless you didn't figure it out. So it really puts a, a strong emphasis on what exactly does that mean. And so that's how the people now are going to come to John the Baptist and ask him. And that is the way that we launch into this. Now, before we go there, let me explain something to you. Please listen to me here. We're not, this is not a discussion of salvation. Okay, we're not talking about how you get saved or how you get justified by following rules and doing things and living according to the ethics of the kingdom. That's not the discussion that we're having. Nor are we having a discussion about how to escape hell and the wrath of God. That is not the discussion either. Nor is this a discussion of the mandates the Bible has on society to have uh, social justice or social equality. None of those things is what John the Baptist is going to talk about in a moment. What he is actually talking about is the fruits of repentance. What flows from the heart of someone who has truly repented, who has been born again, who knows Jesus as their Savior. What does it look like and what does the ethical standards of heaven look like and how well do we abide by them? And so, with that as a background, let's jump right in, starting in the 10th verse. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Remember what's hanging in the air. You know, you brood of vipers. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, okay, so what does that look like? What then can we do? Notice Luke's continual focus on the crowd. We talked about this last week, that in both Matthew and John, there were very specifics. It was the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites that John the Baptist was talking to. But Luke maintains this. No, this was coming from the entire crowd. And what that does, brothers and sisters, is it personalizes this for us. It it includes us. That's the reason the Holy Spirit has this in his Bible, is so you and I will pay attention to what John the Baptist is saying to the crowds. Now, what the crowds are asking for is application. And if you pay any attention whatsoever, you know that every week I try, sometimes I fail, I say oft times I fail, to give you an application of what we have learned in Scripture. Everyone wants to know, how does this relate to me? I mean, in what way am I bound by this? And so the people are just basically asking that. Okay, John, you told us that we're going to hell if we don't bear the fruits of repentance. So what exactly are those fruits? Well, John the Baptist answers in the 11th verse, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has one, I'm sorry, who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Notice the similarity to what John the Baptist is saying, this hellfire and brimstone preacher. Notice how similar it is to what Jesus is going to teach in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere. And the reason is because both of them are describing to you the ethical standards of heaven. They're they're, they're dealing with the same ethical standards, and so they can tell you the same thing. Now, 
in this general response, John the Baptist says there's two things that I want to tell you. On the one hand, that if you have two tunics and somebody has none, that you share that with them. On the other hand, if you have extra food, you share that. Now, I, I want to steer you away from thinking that this is a little list, that if you tick off these lists and you do these things, that you are abiding by the ethical standards of, 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 of the kingdom of heaven and are therefore moral in the eyes of God. No, I, I, that's not what we're looking at. This is, as I said, the tip of the iceberg, and he is using these as examples, as general examples. So let's take them independently. First of all, he says to um, the crowds, whoever has two tunics, share with the one who has none. Now, a tunic is just the softer undergarment, if you will, is worn next to the skin. Both men and women wore tunics, and for the most part, in those days, people had a single tunic that they wore, and they would sleep in it. But some people had two, those who had a little bit better off, and they kept them warm at night. Um, and then, of course, the wealthy have many, many tunics of different shapes and sizes and colors and fabrics. But Jesus, I mean, John the Baptist is talking in general here. And basically what he is saying is this, okay, if a person who has truly repented in their heart is sleeping on a cold night and he has both of his tunics on and he's nice and snug and he's getting uh, sleeping real well and then right next to him is a poor man who has no tunic, who is shivering and can't get to sleep. It is an absolute impossibility and I want to put it that way. It is a compulsion that that born-again person who has truly repented is going to sit there with two tunics warm all night while this guy freezes. Okay? There is a compulsion. There is a desire. There is nothing here that is forced. It is completely voluntary. And so the man who has two tunics will share the extra one that he has with the man who has none. Well, we'll talk about what... He's not saying in just a moment, but let's go on to uh, our, our next example. Because the next example is that you will not only share clothing and things like that, but also food. If a person has plenty of food, now food is a sustenance, brothers and sisters. It's a, it, it is required for life. If you don't eat, you get sick and you die. If you don't eat well, all kinds of malnutrition problems occur. And so it's a very simple guideline. If you've got plenty to eat, then cheerfully and joyfully and willingly and proactively share with the one who doesn't have much. We don't see a lot of hunger in this country. I know there are people who say we do. And, I, and I'm not belittling the fact that some people are, are very um, poor and, and struggle to get food. But we have social welfare programs in this country. Most of us have never seen famine. Well, I'm thinking in 2004 when Kay and I took our first group to Haiti. Um, we took them up into the rural areas. We had just built a church. And we were painting that church. Now, that was really the first trip that we took a team. But what we set up on that trip, as we've pretty much done ever since, we painted the building, we, um, we evangelized the kids, the children, and then we fed the community. 
um, a, a, on the last day. A big, huge pot full of rice and beans and chicken. You know, we, we made all that and, and, and we fed the community. Now, it was the team's responsibility to take these heaping mounds of rice and beans and feed them to the children of the church. And the church was packed. Now, what we really didn't know was that they were in the middle of a famine there. The rain had not uh, fallen in that area for over a year. Folks, there's no social welfare programs there. If people don't have food, they die from starvation. And people were famished. So we had a very unpleasant experience that really opened the eyes of a lot of people. Because we began to share the food with the children sitting there. And we noticed that the children were kind of nervous and glancing. And then we noticed this massive crowd beginning to circle the building. All adults from the community. Pretty soon, long story short, the adults muscled in and grabbed the food right out of the mouths of their children. Hunger is ugly, folks. Hunger is something that you don't want people to have to go through. So if you have plenty and someone doesn't have enough, then the natural inclination of the redeemed heart is to share. When Kay and I got home, I don't even think it's still open. There's a place that used to be down here just down the road called Sweet Tomatoes. And it was one of those all-you-can-eat places, you know, where you had this uh, salad bar and then you had a soup bar and a bread bar and a pasta bar. And people would come out not only with their plates rounded but with their trays heaped with food. And we were just out of watching people fight over rice and beans. And we watched until it made us sick and we had to leave, plate after plate after plate being dumped in the garbage because people had taken two and three times what they needed. Brothers and sisters, that's not moral according to the ethical standards of the kingdom of heaven. So that designates us as an immoral country because that happens all the time. Well, let's see if we can step back from that and get a little bit of a view, maybe, of the principles that are at work here. When you're trying to explain a principle, sometimes it's advantageous to describe what that principle is not. And actually, this principle is a little bit more complicated than you may think it is. So let me, first of all, say what John the Baptist is not saying, and then we'll talk about what he is saying. What John the Baptist is not saying in any way, form, or fashion, now let's just take those two men, a man with two tunics all nice and warm and a man with no tunic freezing to death. John the Baptist is not saying that that man, that poor man with no tunic, has any right whatsoever to the man who has two. To take it away, to steal it, to remove it from him in any way, form, or fashion. Those two tunics belong to the rich man and they are his and the poor man has no inherent God-given right to those tunics. By the same token, John the Baptist is not telling us that we need a socialistic or a communistic kind of government to where the government or the church or even an ideology should step in and tell the rich man he must share his tunics with the one who has none. That's not what John the Baptist is saying. John the Baptist is not saying in any way, form, or fashion that the man who has no tunics at all 
should not work hard and diligently, or the woman that has no tunic should not work hard and diligently and save their money so that they can buy themselves a tunic. He is not justifying indolence or, or laziness in any way, form, or fashion. Nor is he justifying the person who spends their money on riotous living, wine, women, and song, and doesn't have enough left over for a tunic to buy. And so therefore he freezes. He's not saying that in any way, form, or fashion. But by the same token, he's not saying that the rich man has the right to ignore the needs of the poor man. And especially what he is not saying is that the benevolence of the rich man in any way, form, or fashion depends on the worthiness of the poor man. I mean, he can't sit there and say, well, I have two tunics, but you're a bum. So therefore, I'm not going to share this with you. No, there is a need, and the one who is truly redeemed in their heart, the one who has confessed their sins and repented will out of their own desire, will out of their own volition, they will share that extra tunic. And guess what? They will be happy, they will be cheerful, and they will be proactive. Well, after you meet the need, then stewardship comes in. Then we need to talk about, well, how did you get here? And how can we help you out of that situation and not to get there again? All of those things are what John the Baptist is not saying. So what is he saying? He's saying, brothers and sisters, that there is an ethical standard in heaven that God has created. It is an immutable, unchangeable ethical standard that has existed since the dawn of time. It exists now and it will exist until he comes back. There is a standard that God has created. We read about it earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you love God, you are going to love those he loves. You will love your neighbor as yourself. That's the ethical standard of heaven. And our morality as a church is measured by how well we abide by that ethical standard. That's the reason we would share our food. That's the reason we are compelled and happy and cheerful to share that food. So, what does the moral church look like? Seriously, what is a moral church? Well, we're given an example. I'm going to read you two passages this morning that describe what a moral church looks like. You're not going to like it because we have fallen so far from that standard. It's almost unachievable. It's from the germinal church. Those of you who have been in our Wednesday night study of Acts, you know this because we looked at it very closely. The second chapter of Acts and the fourth chapter of Acts, we get a glimpse, a window into the germinal church. The church before Jezebel sneaks in the back door. The church before Balaam starts teaching false doctrine. The church before the enemy finds out and spreads the, the wheat amongst, I'm sorry, the, the weeds among the wheat. It's the church post-Pentecost filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the grace of God. And this is what we learned about that church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. That's the word of God. Devoted themselves to the scripture, to the word of God. And the fellowship, the koinonia, that's us. That's the body of Christ. 
And two, the breaking of bread. Not only does that, excuse me, mean sustenance, but it also probably means the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and, in a broader sense, corporate worship. Gathering together constantly, day in and day out, to worship God and to the prayers. This is what they did in the germinal church. And then listen. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needs. Let me make sure that you understand that that wasn't compulsory. It wasn't done through a government program. It wasn't done because you had a preacher badgering you day in and day out. It was done out of the love of their heart. It was done proactively, cheerfully, joyfully. The early church, in essence, was eliminating poverty within its ranks. And there's an expansion that we go through. Jesus kind of laid it out at the very beginning of the, of the book of Acts when he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the world. That's really the table of contents of the book of Acts. But it also holds for the way that the development on the understanding of the sphere of Christianity expanded. First, there's the church. This is our first responsibility. Then our community. Then our nation. And finally, the world as a whole. Not only for those who are Christians, but for those who are not through evangelism and through benevolence. Brothers and sisters, that's the ethical standard by which the church is judged. How well do we as a church abide by the ethical standards of Scripture? Well, He's going to go on because that's just the beginning. Notice that now he's got that sort of a general statement about benevolence. And now he's going to get specific. And two groups are going to come up to him. The tax collectors and the soldiers. I don't know if you noticed that. But those are probably the two least popular groups in Jewish society. They were in their own rights. uh, People that no one really liked. So people really in need of repentance. And so... We'll take them independently, first of all, the tax collectors. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? How do we avoid the fires of hell? Now, it's not, it's not clear whether this question is just so they can avoid the fires of hell or because they're truly convicted in their hearts. I mean, you, you most of you know about the Roman Empire and their taxation plans or their programs. Uh, I'm, I'll go into it a little bit more in the after church, but uh, basically taxes w- were the life's blood of the Roman Empire. That's why they stood on top so long. I mean, they took the taxes, they would overwhelm a smaller country, and then they would impose taxes upon that country. And they would take those taxes to beef up their military so they could conquer another country and impose taxes on that country so they could get a bigger military so that they could then impose taxes on virtually the whole world. And that is what kept them on top for centuries. But they were brilliant, and they realized human nature. And they realize that if we allow an unqualified or with no boundaries, the greed 
of the money collectors to run rampant, then we will be guaranteed of our money. Because if they lose that job, then they're losing everything. So they would sell tax areas. A couple of big ones were Capernaum because of the trade, um, Caesarea on the western coast, and Jericho over to the east. These were major tax areas, and they would sell them. Zacchaeus over in Jericho is probably a chief tax collector. They actually called them farmers, tax farmers, because they would harvest money from the people. But the way that the Romans did this, and here's what I want you to see. Now, ethics does not necessarily reflect what's on the law books, okay? Now, the Romans might have had a law that said, okay, you guys are only supposed to charge this much and no more. But the ethical standard said, um, that's one law that I'm just going to act like doesn't exist there. (laughs) Whatever you can get, that's what you charge, Whatever you can get away with, gouge them as much as you can. Just make sure we get our cut. And as long as we get our cut, you can make a fortune. As soon as you start hedging on us, you're done and you're dead. Oh, it worked. It worked really well. And so those are the men who are now coming to John the Baptist, probably the underlings, because the chief tax collectors would hire underlings. They would come and say, what are we supposed to do? What Would the fruits of repentance look like to us? John the Baptist responds and says, Do not charge any more than you are authorized to do. Probably 100% markup these guys are getting. And he says, no. You know something? That's okay in the Roman ethic system, but it's not okay for God. You see, you, if you truly repent... You now adopt and accept a different ethical standard. Your morality will be determined on how well you abide by that ethical standard. Now, the ethical standards of the Romans says, go ahead, get whatever you can. Gouge them for all it's worth, as long as we get our cut. But God's ethical standard says, that's not the way it's going to be. Okay, Just charge what you're supposed to charge. And so therefore, that's what he says to the tax gatherers, the ones who are uh, uh, um, gouging the people so much. And, and, and here's the principle that, I, that I, I think we should see. As Christians, we're called to a different standard. Brothers and sisters, Most of the problems in the church exist today because the church has adopted or is adopting constantly the ethical standards of the cultures around them. And that we are called to a different ethical standards. I'll never forget, um, I can't remember the, 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 the year, but I think it was Wilma. After Wilma came through, some of you old timers like me will remember that, and we had some damage. And I can't remember how much it was, but it seems to me it was forty or fifty thousand dollars that we made a um, a claim to our insurance companies. I mean, we pay that much a year, and so it, it was it was basic, really, on what we thought was wrong. Well, the insurance company said, "No, we won't pay anything," which was typical post hurricane because there were so many um, requests that were coming in. So we had to hire an arbitrator or media or somebody to go in and sort of do our fighting with the insurance company. So the guy came in. He spent a long time looking all around here, taking pictures of the steeple. And he came back and gave me a, 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 
um, a, a, not a bid, but this was what we were going to give to the insurance companies, a claim of $450,000. And I said, well, where did all this come from? And he says, oh, the steeple leaks. And I said, well, the steeple leaked before the hurricane. Oh, well, this crack was there. Well, that was here before the hurricane. We can't collect on those. He says, why not? <laughs> get what you can get, man. The getting's good right now. And so you can get, I can guarantee we can get every single penny of this. Of course, he wants his commission. And I said, don't you understand? We're a church. <laughs> we can't do that. We can't live according to those standards. You know what he said to me? Most of my clients are churches, and you're the only one who's objecting. I mean, everybody else is what with this program. Let's get everything that we can get out of the insurance companies. You're the only one stupid enough. We actually use that language. You're the only one stupid enough not to get what you can get. But you see, they don't understand. We have a different ethical standard. Our morality is not based on the morality of the world around us. Our morality is based on the ethical standard of Scripture. So therefore, we are called to a different standard, brothers and sisters, and we have to live by it. That's what makes a moral church or an immoral church. Well, he goes on, and the second group that he refers to are soldiers. Now, as I said, tax gatherers, and most of you know, they were the scum of the earth as far as the Jews were concerned, about as low as you can get. Uh, Not only were they extorting money out of people, but they were also traitors. They were seen as traitors because of their association with the Romans. Well, the soldiers were not high above them as far as their popularity because soldiers were legendary bullies, and they used the power that they had for their own benefit quite often. So, actually, John the Baptist has three things that he tells soldiers not to do. 14th verse. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Oh, my goodness. Does that open a can of worms? Three things that he says. First of all, don't extort money out of threats. Don't be a bully. As I said, that's exactly what they did. Very much kind of godfather type of thing, you know, abusing the word insurance. I'll charge you insurance, and as long as you pay insurance, I won't kill you. <laughs> as long as you pay protection from me, okay? You're, and, and that's what soldiers were doing quite often. They were threatening people because they carried the sword. They had the power. Second um, thing he says is that don't extort money out of them by accusations. Oh, so easy for a soldier to say, guess what? I need a little money on the side, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to tell them I saw you hosting a party of zealots here. And guess what? You know what happens to those? You end up on the cross because you're aiding and abetting these rebels. It was so easy for soldiers to do, and actually they were probably doing that. Now, whether or not these were Jewish soldiers or Roman soldiers, we're not told. More than likely, it would be Jewish soldiers. Um, There was reason for both to be there. I mean, you're always going to see Roman soldiers when you've got thousands of people gathered just to make sure that the order is kept. But also with all the big wigs that are coming out of Jerusalem, the Sadducees and the priests and the likes, you know the temple guards were going to be there. So more than likely, these were indeed Jewish soldiers. But the last thing that he says, this this is what is so interesting, and this is one that has far-reaching impact on all of us. 
in the after church, I'm going to come back to those two because not only is he talking to the soldiers, but who the soldiers represent. Soldiers represent the authority and the power, and when does a power, a government, become immoral? Well, that's kind of spread for us there. We'll talk about that in the after church. But he says, finally, to be happy with your wages. Be content with your wages. Now, understand what John is saying. John is saying, when, when you truly repent, you're the Lord's. <laughs> you're, you're not yours anymore. You, you belong to the Lord. And guess what? He is sovereign. And his providence determines your position in life. Now, this doesn't mean to try to work hard and get more wages. It doesn't mean to try not to advance. What it means is no bitterness because of your situation. God puts you in a situation, flower in the mud puddle. Because sometimes he puts you in that. No bitterness. No, be content with what you have and actually be thankful because all of that comes from the Lord. Well, in a sense, what he is saying here to the soldiers and the tax gatherers is to not abuse your position. Don't abuse the power that you have been given because in a Christian context, Romans 13, 1 Peter, all power, all authority comes from God. And every time you complain bitterly about the authority that is over you, well, you're complaining against God. But even more important to this passage, that if you are in authority, then you are directly accountable to the one who placed you in that authority. So in other words, this is not just soldiers and tax gatherers to the people. This is preachers and elders and politicians and a husband to his wife and a wife to her husband and parents to their children and children to their parents. Whatever the relationship is, God is providentially sovereign and he's the one who has put it in place. So therefore, don't abuse your position no matter what it is because... That's not according to the ethical standards of heaven. And so, stepping away from the text a little bit, let's ask the question again. What is a moral church? What constitutes morality for a church? Shortly after I was saved and the Lord really put it in my heart that I needed to get out there and start teaching. My first real teaching assignment was fifth and sixth grade boys for Sunday school. And I still have the most profound respect for anyone who teaches fifth and sixth graders. Now, if there's fifth or sixth graders in here, don't get offended. But I know, I know we have a fifth or sixth grade teacher here. But I have a great respect because if you can teach a fifth or a sixth grader and hold their attention spans for more than 10 minutes, you have learned how to teach. Now, at this particular time, I'm just kind of explaining what I was doing. At this time, I was doing a lot of traveling. Those of you who know my background know that after I was saved, I got to see the world. I was sent all over the place making digital videos for missionaries. I had a great gig. But as part of that gig, you got to go to some of the worst slums on the planet. And I was videotaping everything. And so I made a little 
um, uh, video for them that I was showing them that morning on some of the amazing slums that I'd been here, City Soye in um, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, the areas surrounding Limo, getting uh, away from the east there, away from the, um, from the um, ocean, and even the wastelands of what was very soon after uh, communism fell in places like Albania and the Ukraine. There was tremendous poverty there that you didn't expect, and horrible living conditions, and so... I made this video of, of, of these conditions, and my question to the class on that morning was, do we have any responsibility as the church of Jesus Christ here in, in, in these slums? And I was so stunned. I still am stunned just to think about the answer and the way they answered. I've got a class full of church-going kids. They've been in church their whole life. Several of those kids actually were the sons of pastors. And I asked them, okay, what do we do about this? How do we solve this? Now, of course, what I was going for was we need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus changes people from the inside out. You know what their answer was? Almost, it wasn't, it wasn't just one child. It wasn't one. It was almost, they simultaneously all said the same thing. Nuke it. Drop a bomb on it. Blow it off the face of the earth. Wipe it clean. Because I can't deal with that. That's too, too hard for me. That's not my life. I'm not called to that. I don't even want to know that that exists. And if it does exist, all we're going to do is say, we're going to wipe it off the face of the earth because somehow those people, they must deserve what they're getting. Now, that's not the view of the church. It's neither that graphic Nor is it that honest. Because those young boys were being honest with me. That was their response. How do we deal with the vast inequality that exists in the world? I'm not talking about within this country. Everyone who lives in this country is better off than most of the rest of the world. But how do we deal with the vast inequality and what exactly is the responsibility of the church. Well, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it, from what John the Baptist says. Because if we have two tunics, we need to share with those who have none. If we have plenty of food, folks, we need to share with those who have none. And so, therefore, the solution to that problem is every church in America taking it on. Yes, we are a drop in the bucket, and that's the reason that people say, it's too big, I can't do it. But a lot of drops in the bucket fill the bucket. And so therefore, if every church was doing what it should do, if they were being moral churches, we could eliminate poverty just like the early church did. But the church has abrogated its responsibility. We have abrogated. Now, oh, we'll talk all about, you know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't, don't sleep around. We'll do all kinds of, you know, we'll talk about morality in that sense. But when we talk about the basic immorality of having so much and ignoring those who have nothing, we ignore our own immorality. We abrogate our responsibility. So what happens, brothers and sisters, to a society when the church abrogates its responsibility? The government takes it up. 
Now, I know I'm painting in a broad brush here. But do you see what the church has done? A sanctified, born-again group of believers who are uh, uh, trying to adhere to the ethical system that God has put in place hands over their responsibility to a pagan organization that deals with a completely different ethical system. And we wonder why it doesn't work. Because the church has abrogated its responsibility. Let me just get this straight, please. Please understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about social justice here. I'm not talking about a program. I'm not talking about a political activism that we're going to go and we're going to force people to do this. I'm talking about the hearts of Christians. The hearts of Christians need to bleed for the inequalities in this world. And we need to proactively be involved with that because the ethical standard, I know I've said this before, but let me just go ahead and repeat it. Morality is not ethics. Ethics are the value systems of a culture. Not every culture has the same value system. I remember reading in a book uh, about the value system. It might have changed, but the ethics of those who live in Papua New Guinea. Okay? Now, they were superstitious and animistic. They thought that evil spirits lived everywhere. And so, if you wanted to go south to see your cousin, the last thing you wanted to do was to say, I'm going south to see my cousin. Because the evil spirits would tump your canoe over and you wouldn't make it. And so, the value system said that the best liar wins. So you would never say, I'm going south to see my cousin. He says, hey, man, come on. I'm going north tomorrow. I'll be leaving at a bright and early, and, and I'm going to take this route. And then you go south. The ethical standard of that culture was to lie about everything you did. So virtue, so morality was the best liar you can get. Well, we know that that is absolutely opposite of God's standards. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the problem. Here's the huge problem. It's no mystery what our ethical standard is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible tells us from one end to the other, sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of the Sabbath. And and, and these are the ways that, 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 that you operate and work. Okay, These are the standards, but what we have done and what we continue to do and what we are in the midst of the greatest paradigm shift in the understanding of our ethical system that this country has ever experienced is that that ethical system changes. Now all of a sudden, where it used to be fidelity between a man and a woman in marriage, now it is if you don't tolerate any aberration. Tolerance is the great evil. So therefore, I'm immoral... Because I do not adhere to that ethical standards. Brothers and sisters, I've told you before, and you need to get ready. Because you're not just considered to be fuddy-duddies anymore. You're immoral. And you're an immoral group of people that something needs to be done about. Because the shifting ethical systems. But what is so devastating to the church... It's when the church begins to actively synthesize 
the ethical system of the culture with its own ethical system or the ethical system of Scripture. The ethical system of Scripture has never changed. God is immutable. His moral heart never changes. It is the same as it was at creation. It is the same it will be when this world is over. It will never change what God's ethics are. And so if a church is going to be the church, if we are going to be a moral church in any way, form, or fashion, it is not how well we get along with the culture or how much they think we're good. It is how close do we stay to the more, I mean, the ethical standard that God has given us. That, brothers and sisters, is the very essence of what it means to be a moral church. We are absolutely accountable. Now, I'm not going to go into something that I'm, I'm going to push off to the after church because I'm running out of time. And, and that's the aberrations of this. Oh, my goodness, brothers and sisters. I tried to kind of warn you at the beginning. We're not talking about works-based salvation. We're not talking about avoiding hell. We're not talking about any of those things. We're talking about the outpouring of a heart that has been changed by Jesus and what that heart should look like. But what I'm asking and what I am saying this morning is that we as a church, and I want to just kind of bring it in to New Hope Community Church now. We as a church need to aspire to be a moral church. What is the church? What is this church? Not the building, the beautiful building we have. Praise God, we're given it. What it, it, it. Is it the piece of paper that has our name on it in the corporation? Is it what it says out on the marquee that we are New Hope Community Church? Who's the church or what is the church? The church is us, folks. We are the people. Now, the church is a body of believers who have been gathered together to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what the church is. Now, there's a lot of hangers-on. There's a lot of people who are on the periphery. There are a lot of people who don't fit into that, and so therefore the church is always reaching out. But at its core, before Jezebel, before Balaam, before the weeds, the church, the invisible church that God sees are those who are truly bearing the fruit of repentance as John the Baptist says. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, what does the moral church look like in the world today? Gosh, I hesitate to say this. Let me go ahead and read you another passage from Acts. I don't mean it in the sense I hesitate to say it. I hesitate to bring your attention to some of the things I'm going to bring your attention to. But let me read from Acts, first of all, another view of this extraordinary germinal church from the fourth chapter. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Don't miss that. The reason they are who they are is because God's grace was upon them at this time to give us the model, to give us what a shining church actually looks like. It goes on and says, There was not a needy person among them. They had eliminated poverty within their midst. 
For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now once again, brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong. This is not something to be forced on people. It's not even something for an ideology to make you feel so guilty about that you do something you don't want to do. No, this church was so filled with the Holy Spirit. They were under such grace of God that the kingdom of heaven as it exists in eternity was more real and more important to them than anything they owned. And so therefore they joyfully and cheerfully divested themselves. I'm not saying that that's what you ought to do because you would have to do it out of an absolutely joyful and cheerful heart. Not because you were compelled to do so by anyone. So, brothers and sisters, to me, a moral church is a church that is living by those standards, or at least trying to live by those standards. Now, as I said, I kind of hesitate, or I hesitated, I don't hesitate anymore, to bring all these things to your attention. But I want to talk about New Hope Community Church right now. I want to talk about what you see around you. Um, don't look down, but do look down at the carpet in this sanctuary. This carpet tells a story. It tells a very important story that I want you to get. Probably 25 years old. Keep it as clean as we can. It's threadbare. Got holes in it that we've tried to patch. We have stuffing coming out of our pews. Over half of the kneeling benches are gone. Our steeple leaks every time it rains. Our bathrooms are antiquated, dated. Our fellowship hall is, we use it for our classrooms. It's heavily used. I mean, there, there, there are so many things that are wrong with this church. And, and, and especially those of you who are new, you could come in here and you could say, look at that carpet. I'm staring at it right now. I don't even want the people at home to see it. It's disgusting. Huh, these people really don't do it, do they? Well, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. I, 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 I'm not boasting. Because I have learned something in 17 years of being your pastor. Every time I boast, whatever I boast about, God takes it away. So I don't want to boast because we do it poorly. Okay, let me tell you, we do it poorly. We should be giving 10 times what we're giving in this church. Some of you don't give at all in this church, and that is the essence of immorality. Take it. If it means, if it's you, take it because that's what it is. You're immoral if you're not giving freely to the Lord. But that's not my subject. My subject is the, is the story that our carpets tell. Because you'd look at this and you'd say, man, that church really, <laughs> hey, they're, they're, they're struggling. They're not doing any good at all. I mean, they can't even replace this carpet. I mean, who wants a carpet like that? Well, let me tell you something. This carpet tells a story, folks. This carpet tells a story in this church because it functions. And during the time that this carpet has needed to be replaced, we have built 17 churches in Haiti. Right now, this morning, thousands of people are worshiping in churches that we have built with our own hands and with our own money. 
And, and, and every time it rains on the rest of the churches, they've got palm branches and it drenches them and they have to stop worshiping. Well, at least 17 congregations that are growing and thriving and hearing the gospel every day hear that gospel because of the roofs that we have put on those buildings. Twelve of those buildings happen to be schools, and we support those schools and literally thousands of children who would not be getting an education in the kind of education they're getting are being educated because they are able to go to our schools. Pastors and lay people are being trained in the good doctrine of the church. We're giving hope where there is no hope. We used to have five. We're down to two because we have combined them. Orphanages where children at risk, that's what our at-risk fund is. For children that, the, that the, the society has chewed up and spit out, know that they have a place to live, that they have clothes to cover them, that they have food to eat. And they also know that a group of people in a place that they've never heard of and will never visit care enough and love them enough to provide the basics of life. Because they have plenty you see, we don't need a new carpet. I mean, yeah, we do. I'd love to have one. Hey, anybody wants to put a new carpet in, that would be great. But I'm, what I'm saying is it's functional. I mean, it only leaks when the water's horizontal, you know? And then we put buckets out. I mean, do we want that? No. But the most important thing in our life is that we share the bounty that God has given us. And if everyone in this country was doing just that much, we would eliminate poverty in the world. We have a university. We have medical centers. Train nurses. Send out clothes to our thrift store and pinch. They sell those clothes and then they take the money and they buy food for the elderly because there's no program for them. So brothers and sisters, here's what I'm saying. We're not there. I just want you to know what our direction is. The elders and the, and, 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 and the core leadership of this church takes it very seriously that we want to be a moral church. We want morality. Morality, yes, it is how well you act, how well you follow, following the Ten Commandments, not sleeping around, not getting drunk, not doing all those things. They're all important, but it also means not dumping a mountain of food down the garbage can because you took so much and you don't care about anybody else who's starving. Okay? So I'll leave you with this. There's an ethical standard of the kingdom. And it is different than the ethical standard of this world. And if you are a Christian, you are called to that ethical standard. And the degree to which you abide by that standard. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And your neighbor as yourself. That's what determines a moral church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your forgiveness for myself, for everyone here. We do fail. We tend to take on the attributes of the culture that surrounds us and we meld it with your ethical system, which is totally and completely different and yours is the only one that works.
We haven't been able to go into that. It's the best life for anyone who adheres to it. It is in the, in the ethical systems of the world that things fall apart and they get ugly and they, and, and they get upside down. It, it is in your ethical system that you've put together because it's the best way for us to live. Oh, dear Lord, help us as we attempt to be the moral church or just a moral church. Just a drop in the bucket, yes, but at least we're a drop. And I know that that gives you the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.